expecting that we're going to do differently that would allow us to raise a hundred times what they're raising. You don't want to set yourself up for failure uh, with unrealistic expectations. Benchmarking, understanding what your peers are doing, it's, it's so very valuable. Welcome to the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast. Whether you're a seasoned professional or a first-time fundraiser, we have the advice you need to take your next step towards major gift mastery. I'm your host, Tom Dauber, president of Abundant Vision Philanthropic Consulting. In this week's episode, I'll be talking about how to prepare in these final days of 2023 to have a better fundraising year in 2024. So here we are at the very tail end of 2023. A lot of us are starting to get ready uh, to close things up for the year. Um, we've got, what, it's the fourth uh, as of the date of this recording. We've got just a couple of weeks until the holidays hit. Donors are not going to be available. Yeah, maybe you'll get some, some checks in the door. Uh, certainly, you'll have some need to get some receipts out pretty quickly. But, uh, but at the end of the day, even though, yeah, we want to be available for year-end gifts, a lot of those big giving conversations, if they weren't started, you know, at least a month ago, you're out of time. So I've often found that as the year is starting to wind down, that this is a good time to take a look at, at what's next. How do we make 2024 a better fundraising year than 2023 was? Now, during my time, especially in higher ed, I had a lot of success at turning things around, at evaluating what was going on, understanding what was good, what was bad, and then making appropriate changes. Now, because I was able to do that, really in every position I've had, it's allowed me to really make a difference in fundraising. Uh, when I came into the College of Pharmacy, for example, they did not have a well-established major gift program. The major gift amount had been increased twice, doubled each time, uh, from 25000 to 50000 then to 100000 over like a six-year period, it went from 25K to 100K. And so our dean at the time wasn't real sure that we could actually close gifts of that amount because we didn't have a huge history of doing that. Certainly, they'd, they'd close some big gifts here and there, but not consistently enough where there was confidence that we could just do that year in, year out. So anyway, so coming in there, uh, from a fairly successful fundraising operation, I was over at the College of Dentistry, and we were we were in the process of, of setting a bunch of records during my time there for fundraising, and it's it's continued on under uh, a former colleague, and and he's done a great job uh, just growing that. But but anyway, when I came into the pharmacy school, we were I think the year before I got in there, they had raised about one point five million. Uh, historically, if you looked back over a 20-year period, they were around 3 million. And so things, things were not that great. 
And so I came into that situation and I really had to tear everything apart. And so, so here in the month of December, via LinkedIn, via this podcast, I'm going to be sharing the sorts of things that I do when I come into a new organization to help figure out how to make things better. Now, of course, I do that as an employee uh, when I'm employed as a fundraiser, but as a consultant, that's something also that I'm available uh, to do for your organization. So the first thing that I like to look at is what are your current fundraising initiatives? How are you presently raising money? Is the money just coming in from grants? Is it whatever comes in over the transom? Is it from major gifts? Is it, is it from annual appeals? Where is that money coming from? And, and if it is only coming in from a couple different sources, why is it more why is it not more diversified? So if you do have a major gift program, why don't you have a grants program? Or if if you have an annual appeal that you do, why aren't you asking for major gifts as well? That's where I find that most people fall fall into. What I mean is that there's a lot of nonprofits that are, you know are doing mailings, sending that out out to constituents. But then if you you start to explore, well, how many times are you going back to those people in person to ask them for, for much larger gifts uh, than just their, their annual gift? Uh, in the higher ed world, of course, we call that annual giving. And, th- and the reason that we delineate between annual giving and major gifts, I mean, it is a size thing, but but it also speaks to the question of of the source. So annual giving tends to be out of your annual income. Major gifts oftentimes will include assets beyond your annual income. So it it may be savings, it it may be stocks uh, that have appreciated, it may be any number of things. Now, it's also not unusual to find people who are very wealthy and and for them they are making quote unquote major gifts for a specific institution out of their annual income for them we want to start thinking about you know how to engage them more deeply how to cast a better vision that might inspire bigger giving if possible but anyway, it's really critical as you think about making 2024 a better year that you really look at your, your current fundraising initiatives. Another place that you want to think about are events. Are your events strategic? Are they really profitable? How much time are you putting into those events? And what is that time worth? in terms of a dollar amount. That is to say, if it's taking you a hundred uh, hours to do a particular event, and if you're thinking about those hundred hours having a, a dollar amount, well, when you subtract that dollar amount 
from what you've made at the event, you know, fundraising. Did you actually make any money? And unfortunately, a lot of times fundraising events are are break even events at best when you really take into account all the all the time worked. I mean, I mean think about this if if you were to just say to your volunteers and your staff, "Hey, go get a job delivering food with Uber Eats and do that for the same amount of time you would have spent raising money uh, or, or, or planning a, a fundraising event, that is, you know, and just take that money that you make working that job and donate it. Unfortunately, a lot of times those, those people would actually make the organization more money just by working a job and giving that money to the organization, then volunteering their time to uh, solicit, uh, you know, silent auction items, or you know, inviting friends to sit at, uh, you know, at their table at a at a gala. Those sorts of things. Because what what we don't want to do is take our valuable time and invest it in something that isn't going to maximize our ability to raise money from it. Now, truthfully, the best thing that any nonprofit can do if they want to maximize returns on their fundraising is to invest their time into major gift work. That is building relationships with wealthy people who care about your cause and asking them for large sums of money. That's the best thing you can do. I mean, if you spend 100 hours on an event uh, and then you spend you know, $5,000, $10,000 putting it on, I mean, think about how much you're behind the ball already. And, and a lot of organizations spend more money than that, uh, especially on those big banquets, right? But, but if I can sit down with one of your longtime donors, or, or you can, not, not me personally, but, but you, let, let's say you sit down with one of your longtime donors whom you know has the potential to give a large sum of money. And you buy them coffee and you talk to them about their involvement with your organization. Why do they give? Uh, express your gratitude to them for, for their years of generosity. And you have that conversation over a, you know, a $5 cup of coffee. You can get a nice one. You don't have to you know, go to McDonald's, but you can go someplace nice like you know, Starbucks or something nicer even where they don't burn their coffee. But you have that conversation. If you're buying them the coffee, which they oftentimes won't allow you to do, even, you know, let's say you're spending 10 bucks, you ask them for $10,000, $5,000, So here you are in a hour to two hour long coffee conversation. You've made $5,000 or you've made $10,000. Or in some cases, I've, I've had conversations like that where we've, we've closed $100,000 sorts of gifts, right? But you've only spent $10 and you've invested maybe two hours of your time. Well, why not do that? Why take the, those two hours and, and maybe some planning time on top of it? So let's say it's three hours, right? Why take that three hours and use it to run an event 
when you could instead have a meaningful conversation that leads to a very large gift. And and that term large, it it doesn't have to be at a particular level that I'm I'm telling you about. Like like for you, a large gift may be a thousand dollars, and so maybe maybe it's a thousand dollar conversation that cost you ten dollars, you know, in an hour of your time. That's still a a much better ROI than anything you're going to get out of an event. So so like I said, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox about events. I dislike events. Uh, I have killed numerous golf outings uh, and other fundraising events uh, in in my day. But overall, if you want to be thinking about a better 2024, you've got to take a long, hard look at your current fundraising initiatives and and what's really working for you and what, what isn't and why. 2024 could be the year you start a major gift program at your nonprofit. This means more money to help your organization serve more people and better fundraising ROI too. Starting a major gift fundraising program takes some planning and some work to make sure you are ready for that first solicitation. Fortunately for you, I've got a free online class where I walk you through the top 20 questions you need to answer before starting a major gift program, all in under 15 minutes. Knowing these questions and spending the time to get to your answers will go a long way towards helping you close your very first gift. Now, if you want this free resource, all you need to do is visit my online school at thomas-dauber-s-school.teachable.com. That's thomas-dauber-s-school.teachable.com. The link is in the podcast description. Now, the the next part that I want to talk about is your peers. So do you have peer institutions, people that are doing similar work as you are? You know, maybe these are aspirational peers. Maybe maybe there's some institution, some organization that that you really want to be a lot like and and maybe they raise a heck of a lot more money than you do. Well, what differences can you see between your organization and theirs? Are they are they knocking the ball out of the park? Well, why? You know, I I was in a situation once where I was at a at a school and our fundraising wasn't great. And I could, I could look across the Big Ten and I could see similar sorts of professional schools. And when I began to dive into their size, the types of constituencies they had, like, like what were their degrees and were they similar to ours? They were almost identical. And so the question then became, well, well why are they doing better than we are? What are they doing differently than us? Are they, are they treating their alumni better? Are they asking them differently? Is there a different level of engagement between their alumni uh, and, and, and our alumni and, and, and our faculty? You know, what are we doing with, with corporate entities? Like, what do those relationships look like? Are there other things, other factors that might, might play into that? So, so anyway, you had to take a hard look at that. And, and ultimately, in that situation, what I determined was that 
there weren't really any substantial differences. The biggest difference that I was able to uncover is the fact that in my organization, we were not asking for big enough gifts, nor were we asking for enough gifts. So, so this, this peer organization was asking for more money from more people. So it was no wonder that they were raising more money than we were. Now, now you might find as you, as you look around and you, and you talk to your peer organizations about how much money they're raising, you might find that the goals that you have for yourself aren't realistic. You know, maybe, maybe your peer organizations are raising $2 million a year and you want to raise $20 million a year. And you, and, and maybe your executive director or your, your uh, dean or president thinks that that is the appropriate number to be shooting for. Well, if you start looking around the country or your neighborhood or your state, and, and you find that the organizations that you think are doing a good job, you know, aren't doing anything near that. Well, that, that gives you a basis to go back to your leader and say, I'm not sure why you think that this is the right number for us. Can you tell me more about that? I mean, you want to stay in a place of curiosity with your boss. However, it does give you a place to say in a, in a very factual, evidence-based sort of way, hey, as I look around the country, as I look around the region, this is what our peers are doing. What are you expecting that we're going to do differently that would allow us to raise 100 times what they're raising? Because you, you don't want to set yourself up for failure uh, with unrealistic expectations. Benchmarking, understanding what your peers are doing, it's, it's so very valuable. You know, I, I, I've told this story a lot, but, but there was a time when, you know, some, some leaders high up in the organization uh, came to me to ask me if I wanted to actually uh, lower my campaign goal. Uh, this was a big, comprehensive seven-year campaign. And when I understood, like I had said before, my, my, my peers were all raising the type of money that our campaign was, was aiming to raise, you know, I, I actually turned them down. I said, no, there's no reason we can't raise $20 million uh, at this organization because we, we see that our, our peers in the Big Ten are doing it as well. So I know that we can do it. And, and we did. I mean, not only did we do it, we, we exceeded the goal by 10%. But the only, only way that I was able to do that, well, there were two ways. A, we, we, we did research uh, on our constituents and, and, and we came to understand that, yeah, we have wealthy people uh, amongst our alumni that we could ask for money. But the other thing was to look to see, well, you know, if, if Purdue could do it, if Michigan did, could do it, well, of course, Ohio State can do it, right? I mean, who wants to be the person that says, well, Michigan can do something that, that Ohio State can't do? I wasn't going to be that person, right? So, so anyway, that benchmarking is really critical. And, you know, I know some of you are thinking, well, isn't that competitive intelligence and people aren't willing to talk and those sorts of things? You might be surprised. Uh, I, I can tell you my time at the pharmacy school, uh, for example, you know, I was uh, part of a special interest group for advancement 
Uh, I was actually the president uh, of that special interest group. And one of the first things we did was establish a database that we all contributed to uh, where where we would report on how much we raised in a given year. And so I could very, very quickly understand how my organization was doing uh, nationally. Uh, you know, I, I think when I was there, when I started at the pharmacy school, we were like one of the worst uh, fundraising pharmacy schools in the country in terms of how much money we were raising. And when I was done, we were like in the top five out of about, I don't know, 150 or so. So, but, but the reason we were able to do that was because everybody was pretty much open to just sharing their data. Um, and that, that's so helpful. You know, I know that that for many of you, you might worry that other nonprofits are going to look at you as competition. But truly, I mean, if you look around, regardless of what sector you're in, there's so much need. There is so much need that many nonprofits are very happy to talk with a, a fellow nonprofit looking to do something similar and, and, and looking to them for guidance. Um, I, I know that's that's true of consultants for sure. I have lots of colleagues that I've I've gotten to know, and they've been very open with me about how they found success and in even even what they charge for different things. I, I find that there uh, is, is plenty of room out there. Um, so so anyway, so those are my thoughts in in terms of you know looking at yourself, you know taking a hard look inward at what you're presently doing, and then then to taking a, a good look outside of what you're doing. And then the third thing, and this, this also plays a role in terms of looking internally. Are you sure that you're counting everything that can be counted? You know, the pharmacists I used to work with used to talk about practicing at the, at the top of their license, right? And so they mean by that is really, uh, you know, things like pharmacotherapy and uh, really helping patients be healthy, right? By uh, you know, uh, by guiding them, counseling them, those sorts of things. Not just counting pills. Well, for a fundraiser, when we're practicing at the top of our license, we're we're asking wealthy people for large sums of money, right? Um, and that's that's really where the focus of our business should be. However, if there's money coming in your door or gifts in kind, you know, product, those sorts of things that are coming into your organization that are being overlooked by your development office or your, your, your foundation, that's a problem and, and that needs to be addressed. And yes, this is going to impact uh, your annual revenues. You know, uh, it, it may not result in new revenues coming in because you've, you've been receiving those things maybe for a, a good long time and just not counting them, but darn it, you should be counting them. Uh, and not only should you be counting them, uh, if you're not, if your office isn't counting them, you aren't receiving them appropriately. So you're not giving your donors uh, recognition for their giving. You're not giving them uh, the opportunity to take uh, tax deductions for their gifts. You're not treating them the way a donor should be treated. So if you ever do want to ask them for more than just those gifts in kind, you may have a hard time doing that if you have not uh, recognized their current giving appropriately. I mean, can you imagine, and, I, and I've had this happen before, actually, going to a company and, and let's say they're giving you uh, $5,000 a year in, in product for free, 
but but your development office doesn't know about it or or maybe um uh maybe they do know about it but we're not really recording it uh in in our gifts and you go to them and you talk to them about making gift and then they say to you well what about the gifts i just gave you you're acting like i haven't made a gift or am not a donor to your organization well you're going to feel really embarrassed if you accidentally do that but but that happens it's happened to me uh before uh, I used to work at Ohio State's uh, dental school, and we we would oftentimes be getting things donated to us by by dental companies. And you, you, boy, you got to know that stuff. And and when you express gratitude, and it, when you recognize those donors appropriately, you know that that's what's going to open the door uh, to future gifts uh, and, and a broadened relationship. So so you really got to make sure that everything coming in that can be counted is being counted. And, you know, if you're at a large organization, like if you're in higher ed and uh, there's, there's lots of opportunities for that sort of thing. I mean, you know, you might, you might see your annual revenues increase significantly just from that, you know, just something to think about. And and don't forget in certain situations, uh, even, even discounts, even discounts given to research institutions on capital equipment, sometimes those are counted as gifts by the IRS. That's not all the time. And so you're going to want to do your homework there to make sure something qualifies. But that can be a real game changer. I mean, I, I know of you know six-figure sorts of uh, discounts that uh, some of the organizations I've worked for have received on capital equipment. Now, again, these are discounts. These are not gifts, but there is a loophole in the IRS code that allows a corporation to count that as a gift. And, you know, what I would always say to my, uh, you know, our accounting staff is if the IRS is counting it as a gift, we're going to be hard pressed to explain why we don't count it as a gift. Um, and so, so do your homework. You might be surprised what you're able uh, to find there. Well, anyway, so so that wraps up this episode of the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast. Uh, It's great to be able to talk with you today. I love being able to think with you and and, and lots of folks about how to improve those fundraising revenues as we go into a new calendar year. Be sure to reach out if you have questions, if you have specific things you'd like me to talk about or address on the podcast, I'd be happy to share that information with you. Uh, feel free to reach out. You can you can go to uh, www.abundantvision.net uh, and, and contact me there uh, or email me at thomasdauber at abundantvision.net. That also works. Anyway, happy fundraising to you all and uh, look forward to uh, talking with you again in the future. I'm your host, Tom Dauber. Thank you for joining me as we journey together towards major gift mastery on the Abundant Vision Fundraising Podcast.